and we're live on a paleotomism one-on-one. Belkov, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. How you doing, Caleb? I'm doing great. Let me just tweet out these links. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also, for the first time, we're streaming from the Osteotomism uh, Twitter page. So we're not just uh, on my channel oh. anymore. And after this, I will be up. I will be creating a Spotify for the. Uh, oh, nice! I so usually have listen a, to podcasts on Spotify too. So instead of all, all all our great content that we've been doing on my channel, will be moved over to the Spotify channel, along with the Spotify, along with the YouTube channel. And so mm-hmm. we're gonna still we're gonna still do live streams from mine because I have the subscriber base, but we're going to uh, start uploading exclusively after the stream to other content places. Mm-hmm. So that's gonna be fun. So, how you been, man? You wrote, this, you wrote a great piece. And um, so what, what have you been doing since you finished this piece? You uh, uh, yeah, I'm working on a piece. I'm working on several things. I'm working on another thing by Scroon, but I decided to, you know, actually take a look at a some Thomism stuff. So Peter Geach, Thomistic philosopher, wrote uh, he wrote a really good book on the virtues, but he is special. But the chapters that really grabbed my attention were his chapters on the three theological virtues of faith, mm. hope, and charity. And I especially wanted to develop his idea of the con- of the virtue of faith. And I can put it very succinctly, just to give a little teaser, faith, the virtue of faith that he, uh, to just summarize it, is the virtue of once seeing the truth, not letting go of it. Even if it seems far too convenient and too easy or far too hard and miserable as it can off, as it often will in different times of your life. Well, that's me interesting. I can't wait to uh, upload that. I can't wait to read that. It's gonna be great. Uh, it's, it's, this whole group is gonna be a lot of fun. Like I am, everyone yeah. in this group is great. Everyone's writing is great. Uh, talking to all of y'all is fun. And mm-hmm. not to lie, but, but, but we have a kick-ass Discord. Yeah, <laughs> <We got laughs> great Discord. We got a great uh, group chat on Twitter. Like we are having a good time with this. So you know, get on board, follow us, and get ready for some. Get ready for a lot of fun. So. Uh, before we get started, tell my audience, we've been around tables, but real quick, tell the audience, um, who are you? Why are you writing? What's your beliefs? Let's kind of set the ground, let's lay the groundwork a little bit. Oh, okay. Well, I suppose I am a Catholic, but I, uh, my interest in philosophy started with uh, the person in my, uh, my profile picture, Albert Camus. So I have a somewhat unorthodox approach to a lot of stuff. Uh, usually, I started philosophy in a very existentialist, absurdist vein. And I sort of went to the analytics later and then found St. Augustine and St. Aquinas and uh, Peter Abelard, which were the people who really introduced me to Christian ethics. Uh, and then I started reading. And at that point, I was an apostate. I was an atheist. I think I was an 18-year-old atheist. And uh, soon after reading, especially the Confessions of Augustine, uh, I had a essentially a come-to-Jesus moment, as corny as that sounds. And I reverted. <laughs> I was raised Catholic. Uh, but not exactly of, let's say, in strict obedience. My father, uh, was not very in strict obedience, at least not at the time I was born. He was when he was my, my age. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother was a lifelong Catholic as well. So was my aunt, but you know, they're essentially very lax, novice ordo Catholics, but they're lovely, lovely people. They go to mass every week, possibly more if they can. So it's, you know, I didn't grow up with a lot of knowledge of the faith and I'm trying to rectify that now. Well, that's awesome. Good, good, good. Hold on, this is gonna bug me. Hold on. <laughs> okay, there we go. So I can't stand my hair falls like that. Um. So before we read this great piece, uh, why did you write it? 
Um, I wrote it because I think especially for libertarian circles, which is, I guess, where I come from in political philosophy, ever since I was aware of political philosophy, that's always been my intuition, with classical liberal or libertarian intuition, there isn't a lot of emphasis, which is rightly so, on the less material things. So, for example, Hoppe's entire political philosophy is that he boils it down very simply. It's essentially a res a conflict resolution mechanism, as into who owns what, and that the the crux of ethics is to avoid conflicts. How do you avoid conflicts? Well, we live in a material world of material things. We are fundamentally, or not fundamentally, I should say, but we act in the world as material agents of bodies. So we need rules. What are the rules of that reason or that by by using reason to investigate the world we can come up with for a conflict resolution mechanism? And that's great, but we usually then just go to economics and we avoid uh, <laughs> everything else about life. We avoid virtue, we avoid uh, love, we avoid all these other things where we don't avoid them. But, you know, it's not our, it's not our well, main not that. thing. They were, they, were, they, were, they were libertarian too when you try to bring these kind of things up or say, stay in your lane. This is not part, this is not part of libertarianism. I mean, um, Tom Woods did an episode on uh, Thomas Aquinas' arguments for God, and Pete got some hate for it because it's like this isn't libertarianism. Oh, so wow. the, the I, should, I should check out that episode. Oh, it's good. He he sums up uh, Ed Fage's arguments for God really well. Like oh, they man, are, great. it's it's a great episode. One of my favorites, actually, for Tom Woods. Um, but there are Catholics that when they try to branch, they're libertarians trying to try to branch out other philosophies or other ideas aren't just quickly political. They get hate. You know, I mean, I got hate yesterday, yesterday on Twitter because I said I want to do some uh, neo-reactionary people. And I oh, just, yeah, I remember. Just... <laughs> and so it's just like you got to – this is the problem with a lot of libertarians. They have a great philosophy, but they just don't want to adapt it or change it or add anything to it, you know? Yeah, they don't – yeah, it's – it's I because here's the thing. I agree with libertarianism at its mm -hmm. core as a political philosophy, but there's a lot more – to the world than a political philosophy. And not only that, there's a lot more justifications to your political philosophy than you can think. Quick as the example for Scrooge on private property. Well, how do, is that he gives a very Hegelian, which is usually our enemy on political philosophy, but he gives a very good Hegelian justification of private property in the sense that, well, how, do, how does man develop his soul? He develops his soul by essentially looking at himself in the world, seeing reflections of himself in the world of his relations with people, responsibility for past actions or promises for future actions. What's the main mechanism for that as well? Well, it's private property. It's it's the labor mixing. He mixes his labor in the world, to use the Lockean term, and sees himself in that world, in that labor. And there he therefore he can start to develop ideas of responsibility, of cause and effect, of promises to the future and responsibility for past mistakes or correct actions, I suppose. So there, and of course, Sruden puts it way more beautifully than I ever could, but he, it's a very good justification or at least a defense for the spiritual side for of private property, but it's not merely a conflict resolution mechanism, but something that's needed for the development of your soul and well-being. You reference Scruton a lot. Uh, yeah. And it was a good reason. He, I, I only found out about him uh, like probably, I don't know, when you ever you whenever you told me, you, you don't want to tell me about him. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And so I was in been trying to get a hold of his work and read his work and watch his content. I like the fact that we have videos and documentaries from the guy. That's yeah. That's interesting. There's quite a few lectures. I think there's only two documentaries. One of which he was on the production side. The other which he was 
only interviewed, uh, they interviewed several philosophers, so it's a very interesting documentary series. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm on the screen binge at the moment because I just, because I discovered him, I think, late 2020, early mm -hmm. 2021, and I discovered sexual, and I thought, well, I haven't seen many people talk about sexual desire, or at least not many philosophers, and those who have, I'm sort of suspect of them, because <laughs> be, partly because I started with Albert Camus, I'm somewhat suspect of a lot of the other continentals, and sometimes, and I'm suspect of Camus as well. I just think that he's an extremely good writer and there's a certain poetic logic, but you know, he's not the most, a lot of the time his arguments are somewhat lax, not all the time, but some of the time. And a lot of the time, it's hard to see why because of the way he writes. Same problem with a lot of the other Continentals. Not that they don't have anything to contribute. They're great, but it's somewhat weird to parse or hard to parse. But with Scroon, well, I saw that I kind of like the Scroon guy. I saw a few lectures. He's a conservative. And it's very hard to see an explicitly conservative guy, a Christian, a guy who has kind of who has defended monarchy newspapers as at least a... Uh, you know, if not better than democracy, then at least occasion, then at least equal to it in certain aspects. Uh, could trying to do an investigation of sexual desire and that it's you know a proper philosophical treatise. It's quite a big book. It's not that short, and uh, he goes through a lot of so, stuff. So, so trying to get through it. <laughs> yeah, and so I read that and I was thoroughly impressed by him. So I decided, well, I'm going to read a lot of other. I'm going to read other stuff by him. It started because also I was reading Spinoza. I, have a, I was having a bit of difficulty. So I searched up introductory books of Spinoza and lo and behold, he had written a very short introduction to Spinoza, much like he also wrote a very short introduction to Kant and a very short introduction to beauty. I read the Spinoza thing. It helped a lot with reading Spinoza. So, well, I decided to then read Beauty, which I think was adapted from an earlier edition called A Very Short Introduction to Beauty. And I was also very impressed by that. And then I, while on my walks, I was I listened to Soul of the World and Audible. So I've just been going on a screen binge trying to make my way through several of his works. Uh, but I, but because partly because of that, I decided that my next article was not going to be on screen, but uh, on Thomistic philo explicitly Thomistic philosophers. Well, that's, that sounds good, man. That's wonderful. Let's get into the article then. That's uh, all right. The screen. Um, can you read that and zoom in anymore? Um, I can read it. I can also read it on my own version if you want. Whatever makes whatever works for you, man. I can read it here, and then you can stop me, or you know, or if it gets bad, I'll just open up my own version, which is right here, actually. So, should I start? Go right ahead. All right. Roger Scruton performed a wonderful service to aspiring athletes and lovers of beauty when he wrote his short bu book, Beauty. This article will briefly review three of the most important points made in the book. So we start with what is beauty? Beauty is an infamously hard thing to define, much like truth. For example, we could attempt to define truth as the following, quote, proposition X is true because it corresponds to reality, end quote. But then can we not rewrite corresponds to reality as true? We end up assuming the very thing we are trying to prove. Beauty encounters similar difficulties. And I'll just pause here quickly and mention that uh, the reason uh, Scroon goes on to do what he does is because philosophers of truth do much the same thing. So continuing with the article, Scroon knows this and follows certain philosophers of truth in using platitudes to guide us in forming a theory of beauty. They are one, beauty pleases us. Two, one thing can be more beautiful than another. 
Three, beauty is always a reason for attending to the thing that possesses it. Four, beauty is a subject matter of a judgment, the judgment of taste. Five, the judgment of taste is about the beautiful object, not about the object's state of mind. In describing an object as beautiful, I am describing it, not me. Six, nevertheless, there are no secondhand judgments of beauty. There is no way that you can argue me into a judgment that I have not made for myself, nor can I become an expert in beauty simply by studying whatever is have said about beautiful objects and without experiencing and judging for myself. Any questions so far, Caleb, or is this all good? Uh, no, it's very it's very easy to read. With, uh, yeah. um, as someone who's currently reading to lose, uh, it's very it's. I read your <laughs> article. And I'm like, wow, this is great. I read to lose. I'm like, oh wow, he's really good because he's uh, <laughs> you're, you're actually legible and readable. <laughs> yeah, the so, lose certainly. Yeah, a lot of afraid philosophers have that problem. <laughs> well, I'm, so. I'm reading uh, Zach Maritan right now, and he's, even oh. though he's a Thomist, and Thomists are normally you know simple and easy to read. Yeah. He writes in such flowery language. I want to quote it because it's beautiful, but I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, it's uh, it's great, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Peter Geish, who's whatever Thomas, Thomistic philosopher, he's sort of a uh, – he's very easy to read, but he'll occasionally have a flowery uh, phrase for impact. And mm -hmm. that's, I think, a better way of doing it if, if you're going to do it. At least make it very easy to read and then sort of punctuate it with almost this poetic language. So, continuing, a few consequences follow from our platitudes. From two, we get that the judgment of beauty tends to be comparative. Beauty involves immediate experience. From six, uh, six, and yet, uh, which is from platitude six, sorry, and yet it involves reasons. Beauty is not directly connected to utility, three, as it calls our attention to an object without giving consideration as to how useful it can be to us. Yet beauty is not entirely divorced from function. Consider that you see a striking kitchen knife. You compliment the owner of said knife on his beautiful possession and his fine taste, where he then informs you that it is not a knife but a teaspoon. How ungainly and clumsy the object now appears. Despite how ridiculous the above example may appear, it helps us to understand that beautiful things are beautiful as the thing which they are. The Santa Seria de la Salute uh, is beautiful as a church and not as a house or an office building. This means that beauty is not a matter of pure dedu deduction. It requires an experience of it to form a judgment. Uh, you need to scroll down, please. Yeah. Uh, this does not mean that the expert critic has no use, but that he shifts or outlines reasons for you to align your perspective with his when you experience the object of his critique. And by the way, you've uh, uh, underlined text as hyperlinked, so I think you can click it and you'll get an image of uh, something. I think it's a, of the, yeah, of the church in, I believe, Venice. Yes, Venice. Uh, and really beautiful. It's amazing. Uh, and just to make a quick note of uh, some of Scruton's comments on architecture, he sort of compares this to another beautiful, to another church that by itself is very beautiful but it's somewhat ruined by what he calls essentially noisy neighbors, like these tall <laughs> office buildings, where in this, this is very congenial neighborhood. You know, these are buildings that are at certain height, they're old, they have a certain style that meshes well with this church. 
So it's it adds to the beauty of the church uh, and to the beauty of the buildings themselves because they're good neighbors and they're not detracting from each other or from the church. I, I noticed that I was in Chicago and there's a beautiful church there right next to two giant buildings. And they're just conventional office-looking buildings. And it's just kind of um, – <laughs> it's it's all – because you see, you, you walk in, you're like, I feel like I'm in ancient, I'm in ancient city. You know, it's a beautiful architecture. And you walk out and it's horns honking and it's taxi yeah. cab. And it's just like this is – this isn't right. It doesn't doesn't fit. Yeah, this is this doesn't fit. Where uh, are we at? We were at objective standard. Objective standards is the second uh, point for review. I keep so, thinking my mouse is on the right screen. I realize I'm just on this screen. <laughs> I, I'm one of two monitors. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so if one takes seriously all that I have said thus far, we are left with a paradox. If beauty resides in the object per platitude five, then why must I experience it to truly know it? After all, after accepting a few basic premises from classical mechanics, I can understand a whole host of, of how a whole host of machinery functions, even if I never use them. Uh, so, what is different about beauty? Schoen provides a twofold answer. Firstly, when we discuss beauty, we are presenting an experience of an object and presenting it as appropriate or right. Secondly, when we say beauty is objective, we are not saying that it is universal. It may be wise to now quote Scruton at length on this matter. And now this is a lengthy quotation. You can stop me at any time if you wish, uh, but it's not short. <laughs> so, quote, any argument that did not aim at a changed perception could not be considered as a critical argument. It would not be a relevant reflection on its object. Oh, shit. My what bad. happened? I I, uh, I accidentally left click and just bounced me. Let me get you back. Oh, right. okay. I'm reading from my version because okay. I can see the whole text better. So don't yeah, worry. Yeah, much better. <laughs> worry, much if, better. worry for the listeners or viewers, I suppose. <laughs> so any argument that did not aim at a changed perception could not be considered as a critical argument. It would not be a relevant reflection on its object as an object of aesthetic judgment. You can confirm this by considering how you might answer questions like the following. Is the Grand Canyon breathtaking or corny? Is Bambi moving or kitsch? Is Madame Bovary tragic or cruel? Is the magic flute childish or sublime? These are real questions and hotly disputed too. But to argue them is to present an experience and to present it as appropriate or right. In the matter of aesthetic judgment, objectivity and universality come apart. In science and morality, the search for objectivity is the search for universally valid results, results that must be accepted by every rational being. In the judgment of beauty, the search for objectivity is for valid and heightened forms of human experience, forms in which human life can flower according to its inner need and achieve the kind of fruition that we witness in the Sistine Chapel ceiling, in Parcival, or in Hamlet. Criticism is not aiming to show that you must like Hamlet, for, exa for example. It is aiming to expose the vision of human life which the play contains and the forms of belonging which it endorses, and to persuade you of their value. It is not claiming that this vision of human life is universally available. This does not, this does not mean that no cross-cultural comparisons can be made. It is certainly possible to compare a play like Hamlet with a puppet play by Chikamatsu. For example, in, for example, indeed, it has been done. There are works of Japanese theater that satirize human life, the kabuki comedy Hokaibo, for example, and works which exalt it. 
And the question whether Bumachez, Le Mariage de Figaro, is a profounder treatment of human sexuality than Hokkaido is a perfectly meaningful one. The objection that aesthetic reasons are purely persuasive simply reiterates the point that aesthetic judgment is rooted in subjective experience. So is the ju judgment of color. And is it not an objective fact that red things are red and blue things blue? I want to say, everyone listening, that was the classiest podcast has ever got. <laughs> yeah, when we quote screwed. <laughs> yeah, it was wonderful. Uh, absolutely wonderful. Like, again, that was beautiful, and I can understand it. Yeah, Scruton has has a gift for that. He also mm -hmm. wrote a few novels, so I think that might have something to do with it. He was oh, trained man. in the analytic tradition, but he's obvi he's obviously pretty much read all the continental philosophers. Yeah. Uh, if you really dig deep into it, he's written books about them. He's not he's not big fans of their political uh, and, of their politics and their of a political philosophy and their economics, but he certainly finds uses for them, surprising uses for them. Mm. Uh, one of my favorite uh, cast, one of my favorite comments of his is how he calls Sartre's being in nothingness a fantastic work of post-Christian theology, which and he draws surprising comparisons with that and I believe Duns Scotus's work on theology. Mm -hmm. uh, I forget the comparison now, but it's made in Soul of the World in the last chapter, I believe. But yeah, he's a very good writer and he's read very widely, so he can sort of he can sort of write in this very beautiful way while also taking you through the argument by hand so that you're not lost. And any comments on that? Because that was, I think, the most uh, interesting part of the book for me when I first read it, is sort of a defense of objective beauty, because you always sort of find trouble when you're trying to, def when you're trying to defend um, that, you know, there might be standards of beauty or objective standards or reasons for it instead of a pure taste thing. Hmm. Absolutely. I was, um... was going to say, I didn't want to, uh, I watched a documentary where he was interviewed. Uh, I don't mm -hmm. know if that's a study or if that was a set, but that uh, that that wood study with all those books and a piano when he smoked. Oh, uh, oh, that was his house. That is a beautiful home. Yeah, he he sort of jokingly refers to it. If you read, I think the the introduction or the preface of all his books, where he has a little quick note explaining them, uh, he always refers to himself as being in Scrutopia, both sort of ironically, tongue in cheek, but also very seriously. Because he, he sort of defends the idea that we should in, leave the world enchanted with sort of these wonderful little uh, things. So, yeah, he I think he, he was all – in that documentary, you saw him horse riding, right? Or is yeah. that a different one? Yeah, yeah. He's riding a horse. Yeah, and a lot of the British time. British gear. I mean, he <laughs> – Yeah, in full like, British he, gear. He looks so British in that, that documentary. I great. mean, <laughs> his romance with his wife is almost out of a Jane Austen novel or something <laughs> like that. It's like, oh, I fell off my horse and this woman helped me. That was saw her from afar. We had seen each other from afar before. Then we started a very quiet romance. It's sort of in this in this English countryside. So it's very <laughs> that guy's great. Yeah, he's great. Uh <laughs> he's definitely someone that I'm going to be reading a lot more. Like my this year is the plan for a lot of I plan to read Aquinas, uh Aristotle, Scruton, Deleuze, and Nick Land. That's my list of people I want to oh, read. That's this a year. that's a great list. That's a very varied list too. The most the most British man in recent history. That seems like a fair <laughs> yeah. uh, statement. That seems a very yeah, fair. That seems a very very fair statement about about uh, Roger Scruton. And a British like I could actually get behind. Like if I was like if that, yeah. if every British man was like that, I probably wouldn't hate him so much. But now yeah. I'm looking if every most upper British class people, British man, like... he sort of because he doesn't have that he doesn't have condescension, which is a very 
he doesn't have this condescension. He doesn't sort of think of himself as above others. In fact, one of my another great comment from his uh, in Human Nature, where he's defending essentially common sense, uh, is that the common man has the unfortunate position of being right about things, but unable to explain why. <laughs> and which is great because you he is a, he has this sort of intuition which he exp expounds upon when he's talking about conservatism is that you know the job of a conservative philosopher is to give reasons for why we don't have real reasons it's like oh why are things this way it's like well your first is like because we like them this way because it's okay this way because we're happy this way it's like you know there's actually way deeper fundamental reasons for why things are this way but you're in the unfortunate position of being right, <laughs> essentially, and being under attack. Uh, he's great. Vimbe Listening wants a good introduction. Um, his piece on music and he had a, a lecture he gave on it. It was music and uh, how, how was it called? Desecration? Yeah, I think that was the, 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 the degeneracy of modern music, I think it was called. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, I know what you're talking about. It I is a, it's wonderful. If anybody listening wants to check that out, definitely go start it up and watch that because it is... is yeah, he has a. Is it a short piece or a full-on lecture? Because it uh, might I think be it, music and transcendental. And it, transcendental. It's, it's much shorter than that. Oh, um, the tyranny of pop music. Yes, <laughs> yes that's the one. That one. Uh, you know his point about like how music, music used to be something you have to go and experience with friends or learn to play, and now you pop your headphones in when you want to be alone and listen to music. And this the entire scenes on it is um, absolutely wonderful. Like it is, it is fascinating. Yeah, he's he's and it's I believe it's him reading it too, right? I, I can't I'm not positive. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. I just it was listened the first to thing I watched two seconds of it. It is. It's him All reading right. it too. That's his voice. Let me uh, uh yeah, I'm gonna post that link into the chat. If anybody wants to go check it out afterwards. Um, it's only it's, ten minutes long. So you know, good. if you have time or if you were on a walk or something, it's a great piece, very well read. Uh and it's very, very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. Let's get back into this. Uh you want right. to erotic art so i just want to say i chose this because i think it was partly because i wanted to be slightly provocative and partly because that was also the most interesting application of um his philosophy of beauty in the book so i thought it was worth it especially because it's i think uh because we're paleo tom to miss i don't know paleo toms is that what we're, what we're uh, called we're, we are uh but of both, because I'd say into the Aust I think we we into the Austrian Thomism because yeah we wanted to represent the Austrian school and said it's like the right wing paleo stuff. But at the same time, I already bought the web domain for paleo Thomism. Uh huh. <laughs> and so we are okay. going to be in a mix of both. Yeah. And whatever you want to call yourself, Austria or paleo. Yeah. Go from there. Well, I'll put it this way: we're right wing, and some people will describe us as conservatives. So in those circles, the the idea of erotic art or art which depicts the naked body is somewhat uh you know there's more debate about that let's say mm -hmm. i suppose in lefty circles it'd be like your objective objectification or something like that which fair enough but uh that that's not the circles we swim in so i'm not you not addressing those arguments and they're bad anyway they are bad <laughs> and i don't need to address them because that's not our audience so <laughs> erotic right. art. I, I, my goal for this year is becoming the most right-wing podcast so uh pete canonas watch out uh, i'm coming for you all right, it's worthy, a worthy goal. So, erotic art. Our uh, erotic art. Our final topic under review is Scroon's defense of erotic art and his condemnation of pornography. Scroon presents this case by analyzing various paintings. We will analyze just two. 
Let us first turn our attention to Manez Olympia, and you can put it uh, on screen if you want. It's a, uh, it's like on display on museums. I don't think there's okay. any problem with it. Okay. Yeah, this is fine. Uh, if you don't think it's fine, you can switch off. But I well, believe I, YouTube I is think, fine with it. I don't know because honestly, it's it's not the pain that's the problem. It's the woman to the right of the woman. Um, <laughs> it, that, it, like, no. I don't know what fuck it. <laughs> Most. <laughs> Like it, I, uh, it's uh, well, YouTube. Listen, if you're listening, uh, this is not porn. This is art, and uh, Belkov will explain. <laughs> and we will defend why. this. I will defend this classification. We're gonna defend it right now. <laughs> so turn our look. Okay, so let's turn our attention to Manez Olympia. Manez is not attempting to present his subject as an object of sexual fantasy. Instead, he wishes to invite the reader into a more hardened kind of subjectivity. Her face is entirely hers, not replaceable, and he lays claim to her body, asserting it as wholly hers, looking at the viewer with a gaze that is anything but sexual. Her hand is one that grips far more readily than it strokes, a hand which is used to fend off cheats, nerds, and perverts. The servant's bouquet and her lack of attention to it show how romantic gestures hold no sway with her. Olympia is a painting of intense individualization and invites the audience to view Olympia as she views herself. As Scruton put it, we are presented with this woman's body through the lens of her own self-awareness. This is a beautiful painting, but its, pain, but its beauty is not the beauty of the woman who is dandling her slippers on the sheet. Our second painting is Boucher's The Triumph of Venus. I may have butchered that French name, but he's dead, so I don't think he'll mind. Uh, if you pay attention to this painting, you'll notice that all of the women in it have the exact same face. And I really, really actually pay attention to this painting. I, you will see. No, actually, look, compare the faces of the women and you will see that they are the same. Please do. You can zoom in. You can do whatever you want. Uh, I, 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 you're right. They all got the same white rosy cheeks. Uh... Yeah, it's the same it's... face. It's That's from, interesting. I, I believe it's from the same model too. It's probably from the same model. So what is going on with, uh, with this down here? That looks like two eyeballs and some teeth. What is that's fish? I think that is actually eyeballs and teeth. Cause that's a fish. Is that a dude? I don't, that huh. is a dude. Yeah. That is the same face on each of the, uh, people. That's interesting. And each of the women. So, if you pay attention to this, this podcast, is so game taken down. <laughs> <laughs> You'll notice that all... <laughs> shush, don't jinx it. You'll notice that all of the women in it have the exact same face. Boucher's painting is a picture of repose, an adoration of the female body. Yet there is no one there. These bodies are unowned, dissold. Not even the bodies of animals, since they contain the universal template of a human face, voided of the self that animates and redeems it. Boucher's painting does not invite you to into the world of another subject, presented for a depiction of their flesh, as Manet so brilliant Manet, sorry, <laughs> so brilliantly does. Manet is a Portuguese word don't, for idiot. Don't, yo, don't hold yourself so high. I was gonna read that as Manet. So yeah, no, I, 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 it's the only reason I corrected myself is because manet is a Portuguese word for idiot. So my brain caught that. <laughs> <laughs> so, man, this podcast uh, is getting classy. We got a guy who speaks more than one language. <laughs> so, uh, Boucher's painting does not invite you into the world of another subject presented for a depiction of her flesh as manet so brilliantly does. It simply depicts, with astounding technical skill, bodies that would be found attractive in 18th century France. 
Perhaps, perhaps then we can say that it is a charming painting and an interesting piece of furniture, but beautiful? We are not so sure. Though the triumph of Venus is obviously not pornography, it is far closer to it than Olympia. An erotic interest is an interest in the person as embodied. A pornographic interest is interested solely in the body. The purpose of pornography is to arouse desire in the audience. The purpose of erotic art is to portray the sexual desire, or nature, of the people pictured within it. If erotic art ever arouses the viewer, then this is an aesthetic defect, for it diverts the interest of a viewer into one of his own sexual satisfaction than an interest which has beauty as its target. Ooh, I, I, that is a, that's a good argument. Yeah, not only is it, I think it's a great argument, but it's even better if you read his sexual desire, because you can sort of see within it the seeds of his theory of sexual desire. And also there's parts of it that are very Kantian, if you look very, very closely, uh, that are very, very Kantian. So it also contains a bit of his theory of the person and of the object, the individual I'm going, object. I'm going on a road trip this weekend, and the day I leave again, Audible credit. So I'm picking up his comp book for the drive. And oh, I'm bringing, that's I'm only. I'm only bringing one book for the weekend. I'm bringing Sex with Desire by Scruton. So hopefully I'll have it knocked out in time. Oh, let's, oh that's fun. That's going to be a fun weekend. So the final paragraph, uh, though we have barely scratched the subject of beauty, and what we have examined here is further developed by Scruton in Beauty and in other works, we hope that the reader is now better informed on the subject and is encouraged to read more and experience beautiful things. Uh, I for one loved it, and I'm very excited to see what you bring next because that oh, was thank you. Uh, that was very. Not only is that fun to read, you actually know what you you can read it and re, you can read it, quote it, and you actually know what it was saying. Um, absolutely well, wonderful. I hope though. so. I certainly hope it came across <laughs> that way. <laughs> that so. was absolutely great. Um, I want to get into a little bit more on that sexual desire piece about how. So I want to try to make sure I understood that correctly. It was that if a if, if erotic art uh, triggers sexual desire, then it went out of its lane. Basically, it's the argument. They... Um, it's a defect. So defect yeah, in the art. So it's it's not... a, it's an aesthetic defect. It's a reason for viewing it as if, for example, uh, using I think platitude number two that beauty is comparative. It would be a reason to consider between two erotic paintings one that did arouse uh, desire or one that uh, as less beautiful. It is either a fault on your part, it might be because you came in with the wrong mindset, or it might actually be a fault of the painting as well, such as the, uh, as, such as Boucher's painting, of not individualizing the object properly so that you can view them in its entirety and sort of making something open for fantasy, which another of Boucher's paintings is pretty much that. I didn't choose that one. I chose a classier one <laughs> to link to in the Thank article. But, but Scroon does, uh, does bring it up and have a picture of it in the book. I, I loved uh this is not a slight on you. I love that the first article on our Austriotomism website is one that a Puritan Catholic mom would freak out if they saw her kid reading. Um <laughs> which, uh, as someone who can't stand Puritan code, so I am actually glad that was our first article. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully that's the great. kid can finish the I'm article and defend it to his mom before she takes the phone away. <laughs> yeah. Well, he doesn't need to click the hyperlinks. He can always just read the arguments. Uh. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I can also, because uh, I made a few notes here, since we have some spare time, we Please. can go to uh, his theory of, because uh, I kind of omitted this, because it wasn't the point of the article, but Scruton's a way harsher on pornography 
<laughs> than I let on. I mean, you think he just sort of uh, doesn't like it. That is not at all uh, his uh, point. So uh, if I can find it here. All right. So uh, the post-Renaissance, this will be a rather long quote. You can stop me at any time if you find a comment interesting or have something to say. We do. The post-Renaissance rehabilitation of sexual desire laid the foundations for a genuinely erotic art, an art that would display the human being as both subject and object of desire, but also as a free individual whose desire is a favor consciously bestowed. But this rehabilitation of sex leads us to raise what has become one of the most important questions confronting art and the criticism of art in our time. That of a difference, if there is one, between erotic art and pornography. Art can be erotic and also beautiful, like a Titian Venus, but it cannot be beautiful and also pornographic, or so we believe, at least. And it is important to see why. In distinguishing the erotic and the pornographic, we are really distinguishing two kinds of interest. Interest in the embodied person and interest in the body. And in the sense that I intend, these interests are not, are incompatible. Sorry, they are incompatible. Normal desire is an interpersonal emotion. Its aim is a free and mutual surrender, which is also a uniting of two individuals, of you and me, through our bodies, certainly, but not merely as our bodies. Normal desire is a person-to-person -person response, one that seeks the selfhood that it gives. Objects can be substituted for each other, subjects not. Subjects, as Kant persuasively argued, are free individuals. Their non-substitutability belongs to what they essentially are. And this, and this, yeah, this is my favorite part now. Pornography, like slavery, is a denial of the human subject, a way of negating the moral demand that free beings must treat each other as ends in themselves. Wow. Okay. He, um, because, <laughs> uh, what? he's right. I think he's absolutely yes. right. Um, that is the strongest argument. Not sorry, that is the strongest condemnation of, of pornography <laughs> I've, I think I've heard. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a also great right. Like like he's yeah, that's hundred percent right. You want it to be uh, the most right wing podcast? Well, this is a decent start. <laughs> it is a decent start. Yeah, I, the I, condemnation for pornography is not that it's bad for society; is that it's fundamentally like slavery, <laughs> in that it denies human subjects and places them in the world of objects. Which, if you because he's sort of a Kantian of morality, the basis of morality is that people are subjects and that you treat them as people with reasons and not objects for your use. So this is essentially pornography doesn't even enter the world of morality for him. It's this world thing out. It's just out instantly. Um. Wow. <laughs> no, like that, that is. <sighs> I'm have to I'm taking a moment because I'm trying to think about ways I can uh, implement that because I I. I I have a lot of friends that are left wing, and so I do. I get, I've gone to arguments about like whether porn is good or bad, mm -hmm. and uh, making the argument that porn is akin to slavery because it denies the humanity of the, the humanity, and um, it's just kind of that's gonna be fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can send you the full passage later so please, that you can sort of do. see it. Yeah, uh, it's a wow. great passage so that you can sort of see it and choose how you employ it in debates if you would. 
Uh, but I, I, I love it. I also have other topics if you want to get into or if you have more comments on pornography. Uh, we got a question from um, Trey50Daniel. Uh, Daniel, can you clarify? Your question, is the piece we read by uh, a Kantian or the piece that we um, that Belkov just read the quote for, by a Kantian? Like, uh, um, Gruden is Kantian influenced. Uh, okay, that's that. what I'm going to say. Everything so, that I've read, or not everything, but uh, what I wrote was a review of a book by Scruton, and what I just read uh, is directly from the book. That was just a long quote from uh, Scruton, and Scruton's two biggest influences philosophically, even if he has significant disagreements with them, are Kant and Wittgenstein. Kant, he actually spends a lot of time uh, correcting or disagreeing with in a lot of his work, but a lot of his like fundamentals are also Kantian. So it's this very good mix of seeing where Kant goes wrong and goes right. See, all I all I know about Kant is what happens. I picked up a critique of pure reason because I heard Ben. Oh boy! Saying, <laughs> yeah, I was I was like 15 years old or something. Oh and, boy! Uh, yeah, I Pio brought it up. I'm like, well, I can read that. So Pio can read it. Uh, <laughs> had the library mail it to me. Couldn't understand any of it, and found yeah. an Ayn Rand video for making fun of Kant. And I was like, I'm gonna go with this chick. And that started yeah. my objectivist rap. Um, I, I, I need to go back and try again now that I'm older and a bit smaller. There's basically, uh, at this point, it's, I have no evidence of it, but I read it somewhere, I think in a Mises YouTube comment section, mm-hmm. uh, on the, or somewhere else. Uh, but it was probably on the Mises website and the Mises YouTube channel, where someone who had attended one of the early Mises U in Stanford, it was either 1987 or 1988. I believe both were in Stanford, the first two at least. But one of them was uh, Hoppe, who is very explicitly a Kantian in yep. uh, epistemology, uh, very much like Mises. He's not an Aristotelian in epistemology at all, though he sort of acknowledges that it gets to the same place. I uh, watched the lecture yesterday, actually, on whether Mises' a priori, uh, a priori stuff was uh, Kantian or uh, Aristotelian. It's uh, pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, Nick Land actually gave one of the highest compliments I've ever seen anyone give Mises and said that the main reason to read Kant is to better understand Mises. He said <laughs> this in the Zeno Systems blog long, long time ago, but really well, long 10 years. But, uh, yeah, uh, it's, but yeah, I, it's, I've heard, yeah, but Hoppe in one of his comment, I saw when someone asked, uh, cause Hoppe was talking about, had a lecture on epistemology and someone in, in the audience in the Q&A section asked Hoppe, well, what about Ayn Rand's views on Kant? <laughs> and Hoppe's answer, she was illiterate. <laughs> <laughs> Which is one of my favorite Hoppe quotes of all time. <laughs> no, I would uh, I would love to see Hoppe talk, to, like a good Hoppian talk to someone like Yuan Buoko and an objectivist, because most of my, my philosophy really, like I didn't understand philosophy until I really started reading Rand. And mm-hmm. I think um, there's a Rand's quote. great uh, for an introduction, I think. Oh, yeah. I, 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 uh, yeah, I think the, the lecture series her student gave, what was his name? Um, Pykoff, I think. Yeah. Pi- L- 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 Pi- I, I, I have no idea yeah. how to pronounce it. I watched his 10-part lecture series on beginning point of philosophy. Uh, mm-hmm. And that was my introduction. And uh, there's a quote someone said, I can't even say it, but like, um, if you don't, like, whoever you start with, you enter into that realm and it's very hard to like not use things Jeez. from that starting point. Yeah. And I, uh, I think anyway, I, I almost I told a friend, he said, I'll start with that. And I was like, no, no, I, I say him ever start first and I'm start there. But there's a, there's a lot of good stuff in Rand. I just, there's, I, uh, trying to, one thing I want to do, I want to adapt as much Rand as I can into like catharticism, um, which is trying to find what's good and bad. It's, it's, that's the point with Rand. When Rand's good, it's like really good. And when he's off or bad, it's just like all the way terrible, I think. 
And yeah. Like, these are uh, extremes. Yeah, pretty much. But she has a lot of good stuff because a lot of the stuff is basically in agreement. I think a lot of her best stuff is uh, restatements or reformulations of uh, virtue ethics. I think she has some of the most compelling writing of, on virtue ethics of why mm-hmm. this is good. And if you're not virtuous, you're evil and you should feel bad, basically. <laughs> I think Virtue of Selfishness actually does a really good job yeah, on this I enjoy it. for the most part. I enjoyed it. It's not long and it's nice. And I think an advantage of reading Rand is that she kind of has a whole systematic view of the world. This kind of gets you used to, okay, philosophy, or at least I maybe not philosophy as a whole, but maybe... If I do philosophy, I should endeavor to build a view, systematic view of the world. Yeah. Now, uh, hers is obviously completely secular. It, is not, mm-hmm. it does not include faith or religion. But it gets you used to that mindset um, because she presents you with it. Whereas someone like Camus um, had many interesting opinions about many things. And in a lot of ways, he was systematic. The Rebel is an, uh, L'Homme Hebel, or just translated as The Rebel, is a very systematic book in many ways. But he doesn't really have a systematic treatment of ethics, morality, or beauty. He has very interesting insights to all of those, but not really a a system of propositions or how to prove things or so on and so forth. He doesn't really have that. A lot of other other philosophers don't have that. Rand, I was about to say Rand, Rand is a very accessible introduction to that mode of thinking. Absolutely. Great comment. Porn is worse than slavery. At least with slavery, you know you aren't in control. <laughs> you know, there's an argument for that, but uh, <laughs> you know, may- maybe we'll we'll come back to this argument. I will event- I might actually write a after we do the sexual desire or during or uh, just before. I'll probably write something on Scrooge's uh, views on pornography, where he expounds in much more detail in sexual desire. Wonderful. Uh, the essentially. Sec- yeah, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> that book is so big, I actually think we might need to break it into parts for the podcast. Yeah, we probably will. I will I think, probably um, write several articles on it. Yeah, Not I even think, joking. No, I don't blame you. It's, it's big, and there's a lot in there. I think we, It's well, basically I'm, a treatise. Yes. I, I think what I'll do after this, I'm going to look through it. And I'll, I'll, I'll try to draw out pair of uh, chapters. Okay, we'll do this chapter. This, this From here to here, episode one, here to here, episode two. Yeah. We'll kind of break it up. Um, mm-hmm. wow, we got some comments in here. Uh, Rand has a good argument for individual responsibility, but the problem of not addressing the idea of any collective at all, which is almost impossible if you want to interact with the weird world. Even if we aren't collectivists as libertarians or anarchists, we need to understand how to operate in any collective circle that you operate within. This is actually why my biggest problem with Rand is he infected libertarianism with the idea of individuality and collectivism as actual opposites, and not, I think it's just a false dichotomy. Obviously, both exist. Mm-hmm. And it's uh it's ridiculous to try to go extremes in either way, and I, that's why my like my biggest problem with Rand is what he did to libertarianism. Is he somehow even if he wasn't a libertarian, if he says he wasn't a libertarian, the hippies just long hair. Um, yeah, she can say it, whatever she wants. She, like you're basically a libertarian, right? Just exactly. Just and deal it's, uh, with it. <laughs> I'm, I'm tired. Like when I first became a libertarian, I was writing a, I was working on a book on you know on a Christian libertarianism kind of thing, and I had to, mm-hmm. I opened the chapters explaining why we're not Randians. Or objectivist, um, <laughs> which is because I had so many people. Like, I would be online when I first got into it. I would say anything libertarian. My family would be like, "You must read Rand." I'm like, "No, I mean, yeah, but I don't like Rand." <laughs> yes, but but. yeah, yes, but not for what you think. It's like I like <laughs> that one head. Um, 
I went to an objective where I thought the Falcon head was better than Atlas Twelve, and they were like, I don't know, they were freaking out. Like, how can you say that? It's, Atlas Twelve is so much better than the Falcon head. Like, it's it's not. I actually think is... Fountainhead's a better book, but I actually like Atlas Shrugged more, if only because literally this is the main reason. Uh, the way she describes industrial processes in Atlas Shrugged mm. is po is beautiful. I've never seen yeah. any writer do that. It, pretty much almost every other writer I read sort of has a hatred of industrial processes. A lot of it is warranted because especially during their times, it was essentially destroying the way of life as we knew it. But it was also doing a lot of good in many ways. And she's mm -hmm. one of the few writers who can sort of describe it with beauty and admiration for well, the people something... who made it and for what it is. There's something about the objective. like, um, you want book. He posted a uh, a tweet maybe a couple months ago, and he said, um, working on something and need inspiration. Can you post beautiful photos below? And everyone was commenting natural beauty or big um that kind of thing. And he was ignoring like, all of them. And I post <laughs> I posted a photo of a New York skyline over a beautiful uh -huh. sunset. And I said, natural beauty, uh man-made beauty over natural beauty. And I meant it like in the in, not in a better and worse. I meant it in like a frame, like if beauty was behind yeah, in, literally in a like photo. Literally above. Yeah. And he the... quote tweeted me and said yes. And I'm like, ah, that's not what I was trying to say, you on. Let me there was something about that. I think my only problem with some people who are all objectivists in beauty is they really hate a lot of, uh, I would say, modern architecture. And don't mm -hmm. get me wrong, there was a problem with modern architecture, but modern architecture is way better than, I would say, modern art. Like, I would draw, ways, I, would, I would say the distinction. Like, if you look at the Empire State Building, or you look at a New York City skyline, they're just not compared to a literal can of shit. You know, there yeah. is there, there's a distinction <laughs> there. And I think there is some, there is a, I would, the funny part is English language is stuck with only so many words. Um, I would say there's a, there's a beauty in a cell phone and what it can do for me, but it's mm -hmm. also a beauty in a that in something that is uh for the sake of beauty itself that is that does not serve a purpose. Mm -hmm. And so trying trying to parse those out when you only get stuck with one word to describe beautiful. Um, mm -hmm. Again, if everyone spoke Latin or everyone spoke multiple languages, we probably wouldn't have some of these problems. Uh, yeah, I'm still stuck with that. speaking English and Portuguese, man. And the little bit of French I know uh, still gets me stuck in the same quandary. Because <laughs> they're all uh, basically romance languages influencing each other. Do you know if you ever talk about the book Sexual Persona? A persona. Uh, what, what, who was that? I, oh, I know I who that was Camille by. Paglia. Yeah, Paglia. that one. Uh, I think he does. I think he has to in uh, Sexual Desire. That's I don't think it's an extensive read. treatment. He has extensive treatments of other people. He sort of has a personal, uh, not personal, I should say, but a, a section dedicated to uh, debunking Simone de Beauvoir on gender, which is great. Ted Kaczynski probably hates women because he believes the Industrial Revolution was a good thing. That, I would <laughs> yeah. love nothing more than to see Kaczynski and Yuan book in an accent, because that would just be absolutely hilarious. The autism would be off the chart. It'd be great. Uh, I, w I wish uh, Rand and uh, Kaczynski had met while she was yeah. alive. Uh, I heard Kaczynski got diagnosed with cancer, and I was recently? I was I, yeah recently like I was legit oh, sad. Man. I realized I was legit sad about someone who um you know sent bombs at his house, and I was like <laughs> yeah. maybe I need to readjust my morality. Here. Yeah, maybe we need to readjust. Like, I, I'm not. I am sad because I'm gonna die, but at the same time, I was like he, he did murder people. Uh, be, be sad that he hasn't repented or converted to Catholicism. Absolutely. Be sad about that. That he, that he might die unrepenting. Oh, that God, is the legit you know, thing to he, be he, sad he repents, about. He repents last minute and be, be, he go to heaven and see. I have a, <laughs> I have a, I have a bunch of tweets in my drafts that for when I die, people are going to uh, tweet out for me, 
and one of them is a picture of me over Goku's face with angel wings, and Aquinas's <laughs> face over King Kai, and it says, uh, "BRB, gonna bug Aquinas with all my dumbass questions." <laughs> and once That's I die, great. that tweet's going out, and I, I'm honestly excited. <laughs> that sounds great but yeah we never know maybe kaczynski has a penitent thief saint to dismas moment that would be great a penitent thief god i only learned about that from unsorted four from a what from Uh, what unsorted unsorted four i I wasn't born away as catholic i became catholic last year and so i so very interesting because i I don't actually know what's catholic or what's just christian in my upbringing (laughs) because i just absorbed a lot of stuff but i was you know, even though uh, there was an Anglican church that I used to frequent because that's they, they allowed us to essentially teach catechism there. I don't know why, question mark. Uh, uh, and uh, But that's uh, – so a lot of it, I don't know if it's just Christian or if it's Catholic specifically. So I'm like, wait, the penitent thief, surely that's that's for everyone, right? Like every, everyone knows about the penitent thief. I mean, one of the greatest culture shocks moment was when I ha- I have a Swedish friend basically raised completely secular mm-hmm. and i think he pretty much pretty much had no idea about the story of the crucifixion like some vague wow. idea of how, how yeah that was a real way 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 you are you from a different planet moment because yeah, <laughs> like no, 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 that is bizarre yeah. that I, and he was like very sincere he wasn't trolling he wasn't like making fun or smile or laughing or anything he was like no no i actually like i think i made a, a reference or something as sort of like a joke like bearing your cross and it was like what's that a reference to and I, I i mean i was like whoa 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 and it was like oh it's the story of jesus and he was like oh that's in the story and i was like wait wait hold your wait, horses hold, up. hold your horses what's happening here that that wow wow yeah that, that, is... yeah, that, that was the reaction i had that was the reaction me and my friends had i i that's one of the things where it's like you. I make so many offhand remarks to like, yeah, to, you know, Jesus and stuff, and it's just like be asked to actually explain that story to someone. Have to have been a position where you have to explain that story to someone who's never heard it before. Mm-hmm. It's just like ah, when you were like you, you talk about a story to people who know it, you, you don't feel too much pressure to do it justice. But I can imagine having to explain it to someone who doesn't really know it is be like, okay, how do I properly describe injustice this moment? It wow. Mm-hmm. I think there's a great story. I forget who it was, but it was one of the first king, kings of the Franks to convert to Christianity, probably because of his wife, partly because he was winning battles after he prayed. So he decided, okay, I'll convert. But he didn't really know the story. Uh, but when he heard the story from a, a, a bishop that uh, basically taught him before, I believe, before or after baptism, I forget, uh, he said he raised his axe or his sword or something and said after hearing about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, he said, if me and my Franks were there, things would have been different. <laughs> and that's a great sentiment. I, I find that's that energy. Um, there's a great meme of that actually. And it's, uh, you know, like if girls had a time machine and it's them going back to their grandma's like, I'm your granddaughter. Then it's the, mm-hmm. uh, if boys have a time machine, and it's so as a guy with two machine guns approaching Jesus saying, follow me, I'll get you out of here. And it's him <laughs> saying, no, my child, I have to do this. And it's a <laughs> wonderful meme. Like, I can't, I mm-hmm. have to save it because it's a fantastic meme. Yeah, speaking of time travel, since we're, I think we're close, we're close to the end, right? Looking at the Sad, timer. S- sadly, sadly. Yeah, so it's just fun. in time travel, I actually have a, recommenda- a recommendation for a really good Catholic novel oh, uh, by R.A. Lafferty. It's called Past Master. Uh, this is funny. Sam Hyde has also recommended this novel, so you know it's quality approved. Uh, <laughs> and it's basically about Thomas Moore traveling in the future to fix uh, uh, a society. 
And the reason they pick him, they they have a they essentially have technology of time travel and they could pick anyone they wanted. And they pick him because he's the only one that they knew had an honest moment, if you know about the story of his death. And they pick him about a year before. And it's such a great book because it also implore, explores Thomas's because like Thomas has no fucking clue why he's going to like kill essentially kill himself mm. for what's a, a minor point, a relatively minor point of doctrine. Uh, and he has no idea why he'll find the faith to do this. He's like, look, sometimes, in, you know, just before night falls, I'm not sure. I believe every morning I wake up full of certainty, but in the night, I'm not so sure. But, you know. I'll go along and do my best because I want to help people. And it's also his journey of sort of rediscovering his faith. And it's there's a lot of great lines in it. And Lafferty is a master uh, writer. Uh, man, I, I should get I should actually send you a few quotes about a few exchanges that are really really good. Um, he, he sort of has uh, this. It's a sort of new uh, brave new world society, but mm. essentially people are leaving it to live in the worst slum you can possibly imagine instead of living in a technological paradise. Uh, and it's sort of implied in the beginning that it's, this is due to, uh, let's just say, like meaninglessness. And they choose to suffer uh, rather, than, rather than live in luxury. And those that do still live there, they are killing themselves more and more because they have these painless suicide moves. You can just walk in, press the button, and you die painlessly. And I wonder if there's any technological equivalent to that. I don't know if you saw the suicide pod recently, like a few months ago, I think. Oh, that I oh and there's a was... great exchange about that where I think it it's a very brief exchange where one of the leaders is essentially bragging, like, look, we've made this very clean and sanitary and efficient. And he's like, Yes, you've made one of the ugliest deeds efficient. <laughs> and it's just and it's this great line where Thomas really gets his like full lawyer mode and condemns him uh past, but, uh, mean, it's, past master who was it by r.a lafferty um he was gene r.a lafferty he's great uh another this isn't really a book recommendation because he's harder to because he's another writer he's harder to read but often consider one of the best uh fic, uh fantasy and sci-fi writers of the 20th century in the united states is gene wolf who was another of uh, devout roman catholic interestingly and uh R.A. Lafferty was Gene Wolfe's favorite writer. Sam Hyde has also recommended Past Master. I think, yeah, I've, I've said that before, but I always find that funny because that's how <laughs> I find the found the book for a random Sam Hyde video. Uh, so, yeah, it's great. He's also the reason, although some people may not like this, R.A. Lafferty is one of the main reasons Neil, Ga Neil Gaiman, if you recognize the name, is a writer today. Do you um, know who that is? I do not. You don't? American God, Sandman, the comic books? Really? Oh well, okay. I I do know what you're talking about now. Yeah, yeah. Nokia got sent. Yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about now. Yeah, I'll send. I'll also send just a search result in private chat. But uh, yeah, Neil Gaiman. He wrote. I think when he was like 12 or something, he wrote a short story because Rory Lafferty was mainly a short story writer. And and uh, Gaiman's favorite one, in my opinion, one of the best of the 20th century of the latter half, at least. And he sent. And Neil Gaiman wrote a short story trying to kind of. Uh, you know, synthesize a lot of stuff from what he was reading when he was like 12 or something. And Lafferty wrote back with a full critique and saying, keep out of you've got talent. And they started a correspondence ever since then. <laughs> Another great thing about Lafferty, and this this is actually one of my favorite things about Lafferty. He was like an electrical engineer. He just like, 
like mechanic, like proper, like just with blue collar. And he mm -hmm. started writing in his 40s. Hmm. He didn't pick up it up as a career until then. And his justification when asked was, uh, I knew when I was 40 years old that I was the best short story writer in the world. I only started publishing to prove it to everyone else. <laughs> He's a great personality. Respect. Respect to that. One more thing. Uh, I have two more things I want to do before we end this. Uh, one, mm -hmm. you mentioned the book a while ago, something Margarita. Some, uh, the Master and Margarita. It's where the my master, name right. comes yeah, yeah. from. The Master and Margarita. Volgakov, the writer. Mikhail Volgakov. Which is, and this is hilarious to me. It's Daniel Radcliffe, the actor of Harry Potter's favorite novel. Really? I'm not even joking. This is a quote. This is on the first page where it has, you know, praise for the book. From Daniel Radcliffe, my favorite novel is just the greatest explosion of imagination, craziness, satire, humor, and heart. Wow. And this is like, like I've seen this in other. You must have other, good taste. <laughs> yeah, apparently he has good taste, but it's a very good book. It's great. Well, it's uh, it's now on my list of my my readers are now up to twenty three. I'm up to twenty three now. I knocked <laughs> off four, and now I'm back up to twenty three. <laughs> well, that's so, how it goes. That's how it goes. Um, so let's let's wrap this up by let's wrap this up by summarizing what we've been, what we've what we've gone over today. One, beauty is uh, there's objective beauty. Mm -hmm. uh, two, you write very great articles. <laughs> three, uh, pornography is akin to slavery. <laughs> yes. Uh, four, I need to read more books. Yeah, think, well, so, so do we all. So do we all. So, what is uh, if you wanted to summarize, if you had to summarize your article in a sentence or sentence or two, what would be how you if you want not summarize if you want to get someone to read your article and say a sentence or two, how would you get someone to go read it? Hmm. Well, I'm not the greatest writer, but I suppose mm -hmm. I would say if you want uh, a a quick foray into the argument that beauty is objective, it is not just a a feeling in the mind that it is real and there are, and there are standards and reasons then i rec would recommend my article and if you find it interesting then screen's book wonderful bokov where can people where can people find you at uh i'm on twitter uh i'll probably take a break from it for a while i'll i'll maybe on the discord so you can reach me there but i'll probably okay, take away about to say <laughs> yeah I, say. i'll probably take a break from from it for a while uh but I'll be on Twitter. I'll probably still check DMs anyway. Uh, but I'll be on Twitter at available username. Uh, you can just also search uh, Bolikov's Behemoth, I suppose. And it's the same profile picture I'm wearing right now. I don't really post much stuff there. I mostly comment or retweet things I find interesting. Occasionally quote with Snark or something. But uh, we'll keep everyone posted when I have another article. And I'll be sure to announce it there. Hopefully is sometime in the next two weeks. Wow, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, guys, this is another episode of a. Uh, this is the first episode of the Austrian Atomism One on One. Um, it's been a lot of fun. Make sure you subscribe to this channel and also go up in the future. We are going to be having Austrian Atomism on Spotify, all the other podcasters, uh, YouTube, and we have the website up. It is in the description. So uh, follow the website, subscribe to the content, and get ready for a lot more wonderful Catholic content from a, from Catholics who probably taken one too many red pills. And with that, let's wrap it up. Bokov, a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you.